Take a network break. We're happy to report there's no supply chain shortage of virtual donuts. So help yourself as we swan dive into the deep end of IT news. We've got stories today on Dell, VMware, NVIDIA, Aruba, and more. You can join the Packet Pushers on April 22nd for our first ever live stream event. We're doing it with Alkira. We're going to learn about their networking as a service, multi-cloud solution. It brings together networking, governance, security to connect users and workloads across multiple clouds. We're going to talk to customers, get a technical deep dive, and more. You can sign up for this for free at packetpushers.net slash livestream. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm sort of, the more I get into the Alkira product, the more I realize it's post-SD-WAN, post-SASE. It's, it's what happens when all of your networking needs to be one, but everything's different. Like all of your networks are like, you've got a data center, you've got AWS, you've got Azure, you've got SD-WAN, you've got some MPLS, and you've got some distributed users working from homes or coffee shops or whatever. How do you bring it all together? And I'm beginning to think that's the story that Alkira has, or at least that's the direction they're headed down. So if you want to understand that a little bit more and listen to customers, they're actually putting two customers up, yep. big customers, right, Yep. Um, who've done this, who use the product. Like, we were in the training uh, doing a review the other day, and one of the guys uh, who was uh, one of the customers who's speaking actually <laughs> said, I just deployed a new Alkira node while you were bang banging on there in right. 30 minutes. <laughs> Yes. I was like, all right. And that was an unpaid placement. But there you go. That's right. It was quite, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, if you're curious, uh, packetpushers.net slash live stream to um, uh, register. It's going to happen on Thursday, April 22nd. We hope to see you there. We'll tell you a little bit more about it in the middle of the show. Uh, and then stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with AppNetto. We're going to explore how IT can optimize performance and support for a highly distributed workforce and develop a sustainable strategy for a work from anywhere reality. All right, let's get to mm -hmm. the news. Dell Technologies announced it's spinning off its ownership of VMware with a cash dividend of 11 to $12 billion. Dell Technologies held an 81% equity stake in VMware and is going to get almost $10 billion of that dividend. Yeah, this is something we've talked about on and off, I think, a couple of times over the last two or three years. Dell was rumored to be selling VMware, and then people would all get very excited, and then it would quieten down, and then it would come back. Uh, this time it's official. They've lodged all the paperwork with the bodies that uh, oversight all these things mm -hmm. in the US. Uh, and it's interesting in the sense that most of the analysts are taking the view that Dell wants to pay down debt. Obviously, $10 billion is like real money yep. to Dell yep. and pay down debt. But when you sort of uh, scratch away at this a little bit, I think I ended up coming to the view that um, there's there's two ways to look at VMware as the first thing. As a company... VMware could have value when it's independent from a hardware maker. And that way they can sell their products to, to Cisco and HPE and Dell and any other hardware company. They can go and sell on top of AWS or even Azure and they can achieve maximum revenue as a standalone company. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I can see, you know, an HPE being, uh, they still obviously have to work with VMware, but being less excited about it because it's a Dell company with VMware being a free agent, those kinds of mm. frictions get reduced. Well, the, the converse view of that would be that VMware should be vertically integrated with Dell so that they can sell them as a single bundle. So the hardware and the software comes together and they've got a multi-cloud play and VMware gives Dell a multi-cloud hybrid cloud solution over time. It's got a leading footprint in existing data centers. They can go in and sell Dell servers. And there seems to be two sort of camps there, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. And I think Dell at the end of the day has decided that they're better off selling VMware, or I think more likely uh, what they need is the money to pay down the debt so they can move forward. And um, 
So yeah, Dell has been carrying lots of debt uh, due to that EMC acquisition was was how it got VMware in the first place. Uh, 67 billion. It was 67 billion when the acquisition mm-hmm. happened. I, it's down to about 48 billion now. And according mm. to some documents they released, it's going to be 35 billion if this deal goes through and they can pay off that debt. So they're carrying a lot. Yeah. And they need to clear out that debt before interest rates rise. There's a prediction that when you come out of the pandemic, um, there's going to be a change in the economy and you'll see inflation start to rise. Right. And if that's the case, the cost of money uh, will start to rise. So they won't be able to keep issuing notes at 1% or 2% and turning them over. They'll actually start having to service the debt at much higher costs. So there is a motivation. Uh, and this is also a time when the technology market seems to be at a peak. There's a general perception that technology stocks might have peaked at the moment or they're reaching a peak or reaching a, a, a level of excitement. And uh, Michael Dell might have decided that this is the time to, to get out. Now, it also has to be said that uh, a lot of people have highlighted that Dell shares are not open, right? The, the company is largely owned by Silver Lake. Uh, who took the company private in the, one of the biggest private equity deals. Only some of the shares are on the market. Dell owned VMware, and it sort of did this reverse inverted listing where it listed some shares, but all the voting rights belonged to Dell. Mm-hmm. And the point that some people are making is that Dell's shares and VMware shares are not fairly priced because of this weird ownership cycle, right? Yep. Because the shares aren't traded in the open market, um, particularly index funds. So a lot of people are using index share funds, to trade. And because the Dell VMware ownership cycle is so weird, they underinvest in that stock because they don't get voting rights, they don't get dividend rights, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So the theory goes, if Dell can go to a more conventional ownership structure, it fits into the business model of more share buyers and their share will rise. Considering that Dell shares have already up 400% this year, they've literally lifted from $25 to nearly $100 Hard to imagine. There's too much more to go, but that's what they're going for. And if you so, if you believe in that thesis or that point, this is the time for Dell to sell it off. Yeah, my initial reaction was that uh, Dell was cashing out because of an impression that maybe VMware has sort of reached its peak value, and so this was the best time to get out of VMware uh, to get the most money it could for it. But I also, in reading the uh, news reports and documents, there's also um, a a taxation deal here that there's uh, an IRS ruling out there that could say this is a tax-free deal, but it's dependent on the time it happens, so that Mm tax-free element is also a play here as to why it's being triggered now. Yeah, these big deals are never one. It's never one it's thing. Never one we thing. say this over and over. Right? Yes. <laughs> and the, the bigger the thing, the more often it's a multi-factor equation. It's very rarely just one thing or very rarely a single motivation. It might be a primary factor, but I think, you know, the primary factor here is that Dell needs to get its debt load down. Silver Lake wants to get the money back in, reduce the uh, servicing costs of the debts that it's got so it can reinvest elsewhere in the market. There's lots of other places it would like to take that uh, remaining $34 billion, uh, invest in rockets or space or something, you know, like some other <laughs> hot area. So, you know, they would be probably forcing this, I think. Anyway, so there's just some different views on that. Uh, you decide which one you like. And if you're an investor, no doubt you'll make your own thesis about whether you're doubling down or buy it, selling out, one of the two. That's right. All right. And links in the show notes if you want to read uh, more. Uh, moving on, Aruba Networks laid out a strategic vision, made some product announcements at its Atmosphere 2021 event last week. Uh, my take is that Aruba's basic claim is that the edge, not the cloud, is the center of the universe, particularly for Aruba. Yeah, I can go with that for Aruba because they don't have much in the way of cloud. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's quite right. Funny how that lines up. <laughs> 
yeah, funny, you know, sell the product that you have, not the product that you don't have. Um, so, but I can agree with that. I think that Aruba's strength, of course, has been around that wireless experience. And then they started to twist that into an IoT edge mm-hmm. experience, you know, the Bluetooth sensors and all that sort of stuff back in the day. And I think I've always said to you that the campus branch is not the long-term future and they've demonstrated a willingness down with their Silver Peak acquisition. Uh, absolutely, hands down, the best presentation that I saw was the founder of Silver Peak, David Hughes. Hughes, uh, who gave a literally the most coherent presentation I've seen in two years. I also Just, agree with you on that. Yes, uh, it, it actually had information, which was a nice change. Yes, and it, there was no bloviation. There was no how awesome I am. It was literally just laser sharp. And I just, something I actually, and the audio was great. <laughs> I could hear it without your, having your to personal work really bugaboo, hard. yes. Personal bugaboo, but uh, yeah. Uh, so basically he was laying out the vision that security and network are converging, but everybody's got a different heritage. And his point would be to come back to the edge is that both the real and Silver Peak are at the edge so they can come together there. Uh, and But what they're also emphasizing is, Aruba's big thing is that they're saying, look, you can have everything in the cloud and you can pretend that the cloud is where it is, but it's not true. Most people are still at the edge with physical things connected and a bunch of ugly IoT, you know, whatever (laughs) you've got at the edge, it's industrial or it's IoT, Mm -hmm. and you need something that solves that campus problem at the branch, as well as solving your hybrid distributed working. I call it distributed work, the distributed work. Where are your users? whether they're in the office or whether they're working from home or whether they're working at a shared office space, they need the same experience as far as you can make it. And you've got to bring all of that together into one. So he's saying, uh, pitching the secure edge portfolio, which is this combination of connect to anything anywhere, including the the legacy physical stuff. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah, so he did uh, put a lot of emphasis around IoT at the edge, so at a warehouse or at a retail branch where you're not necessarily going to send traffic from IoT sensors out to a SASE service for security scanning. You're going to want to pump that back, uh, either do micro-segmentation for security or pump that back to your own security suite. And he said, you know, combine ClearPass for the device identification and segmentation and our SD-WAN solution to do that traffic handling. So obviously, again, leveraging what they have in their portfolio, but trying to tweak the value proposition. Hmm. So specific announcements that I saw around the Silver Peak was they're saying that uh, Silver Peak is now integrating ClearPass into Silver Peak. So they're moving towards a zero trust network access as part of the SD-WAN. Right. So they're going to see more devices are going to be connected to the user, to the network, but not more users. I like that. That makes sense. We're going to see more sensors, more nodes, but not necessarily more users. Companies are more likely to shrink headcount instead of to grow it. Um and then he's highlighting that devices are often more vulnerable. There's a lateral movement. So they really want to be able to get into this segmentation. So they're going to push their micro-segmentation story. And he's talking about how um, zero-trust dynamic segmentation is going to be a big thing for Silver Peak at the edge of the network and how they're going to push the security right out to the edge, micro-segment all those legacy devices at the edge, and then carry that micro-segmentation across the SD-WAN. And I like that story. That makes sense to me. Uh, the other announcement is that they're expanding the onboard security capabilities of the Edge Connect SD-WAN devices. Uh, they already have zone-based firewalling and URL filtering. They're now adding IDS IPS capabilities. So if you want that local security aspect, you can have it on box. And I think that was always a weakness in the Silver Peak product was that they didn't have the security part of the SD-WAN. They didn't have the SaaS part. Right. They were, they were still doing, they're still one of the best SD-WAN providers in my view. 
that heritage of WAN acceleration and their ability to groom traffic flows and to really have an intelligent SD-WAN appeals to my way of thinking. But the lack of security was like, you know, everybody else has got firewalls at the edge and inspection and uh-huh. they're doing, you know, all that. And so bringing that on, I think, rounds out the portfolio. So I was impressed with the whole Aruba Atmosphere event. I sat through lots and lots of different sessions but these are the key takeaways that I came out. One other thing for me that stuck out is in I saw Kirti, the, the CEO's presentation, and David Hughes's, and they kept talking about SASE uh, or not talking about SASE in a way that stuck out to me in that Aruba lacks SASE, uh, the Secure Access Services Edge, in their portfolio. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they're being very clear about that, which I appreciate them acknowledging that and saying, what we're going to do is partner where you're uh, easy en route to SASE because of our SD-WAN capabilities. We can do direct internet breakout to your favorite provider, be it, you know, Palo Alto, Checkpoint, Zscale or whatever. And I think anytime a big company in their own keynote mentions competitors, that's, uh, I think, a sign of their acknowledgement. Yes, we don't have this in our portfolio, but we can help you leverage other people. I appreciated that uh, upfrontness from them. And I guess the flip side of that is companies like Zscaler and Cloudflare don't have the physical edge. I uh, mean, in some ways you could say that, yes, they sort of rely on folks like Aruba to get traffic to yeah. them. And those types of companies aren't ever going to do a fat edge, except maybe a VPN client. Right. When they're Which forced Zscaler to. has, they do have a client element, yeah. They do, but they're not serious about it. They kind of don't speak about it. They <laughs> want you to send them the traffic so they don't have to support it. Yes. It's kind of, it's kind of a love-hate thing. But I think everything's going to the edge. You need a fat client at the edge. Now, whether that's a software client or a node, a physical node, or some sort of uh, virtual network instance, you know, some sort of uh, NFV type instance at the edge doing your intelligence processing as close to the data source as possible. I think long-term, that's where we're headed. There won't be any of this. I just send it into the cloud. We'll sort it out in the center somewhere. Too late by the time it's got there. All right, so links in the show notes if you want to find out more of our perspective. Uh, NVIDIA also held a virtual event last week and made a bunch of product announcements, including in the SmartNIC data processing unit space and a new cybersecurity AI framework they're calling Morpheus that promises to be able to inspect every packet in a data center using pre-trained AI capabilities. It was a deluge of announcements. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> the Flood keynote, the I think they were hitting a, hitting a release cycle. Uh, a, a, a product announcement every like four or five minutes. It was like the AWS of old. Uh-huh. We would just sit there and announce product after product. Uh, it really was quite something. Um, the, so what I had to do is pick out a few things that I thought we could bring forward to you. One of them is uh, Bluefield 2. We've talked a lot about SmartNICs, DPUs here on the network break and the packet pushes and how I see this. Uh, I have a thesis that this is a substantial inflection point towards that fat edge thing. And what they're saying is that the Mellanox Bluefield 2 or the NVIDIA Bluefield 2, as it's now called, is now generally generally available. Uh That's something that uh, was been announced for quite some time, but Mellanox was never able to ship it. They kept saying it's coming, it's coming. NVIDIA has now said it's generally available. And then they went double down on it and said, we're now committing to an 18-month release cycle on DPU hardware. And then they took one breath and then flipped over to start talking about Bluefield 3, which is they're announcing it at the same show. So Bluefield 2 is the existing one, 6.9 billion transistors, eight ARM CPU cores, 100 gigabits per second of IPsec, 50 gigabits per second of regex performance. 
Uh, regex performance in a smart neck, some people haven't heard of that before, and that is because uh, you can just literally load a regex into a filtering of the data stream, and then you can start searching for social security numbers or credit card numbers, and if they're not supposed to be there, mm. you can um, flag an alert as a security card, for example. So regex performance is key to how network adapters detect uh, patterns in the data stream for networking, right? Which will probably tie into that Morpheus conversation we'll have in a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the second thing that they announced about the Bluefield 2 is that they have a second version of it, which is a Bluefield 2 with a direct attached storage with literally a flash interface. It comes with a SAS um, uh, onboard M2 SSD form factor, and you literally clip in your favorite SAS module, and then you actually have you know, 200 gigs, 400 gigs of storage on board. Uh, why do you want to do that? You want to be able to actually run apps on the NIC. This is something that we haven't alluded to so much here because it wasn't clear. But if you've got eight ARM CPU cores and, you know, gigabytes of memory, 64 to 128 gigabytes of memory on that card, you want to run the apps on that card. You want to free up the CPU on the server so mm -hmm. that it's not doing the storage operations or the networking or running a firewall or doing IDS IPS. You want to run all of that in the NIC so that your CPU is unloaded. And by adding the flash to this, they're substantially changing the way that this works. And uh, they've actually stolen quite a substantial march on their competitors. If you look at the other people out there doing smart NICs, they're still talking about, we've got a smart NIC and it's good. You know, and uh -huh. NVIDIA is saying, no, no, we're shipping a smart NIC. It's got our eight CPU cores, and now you can start clipping your own SSDs directly to it. Where you go. <laughs> so, yes, and then also which, announcing Bluefield 3 to say we're not standing still. And committing to an 18-month release cycle. So Bluefield 3, Bluefield 4, uh, and so on. So Bluefield 3, a couple of things I thought I would draw out. This is a 400 gigabit Ethernet uh, DPU. They talk about it having 10 times the accelerated compute of the previous generation has 16 ARM A78 cores and four times the acceleration for cryptography. So that means you're doing 400 gigabits per second of line rate encryption. Wow. NIC is literally a 400 gig NIC. Uh, and it's also got fifth generation PCIe bus and some support for time synchronized data centers. So if you want to do a PPTP high time resolution synchronous data transfers, then this NIC supports all of those features. So you can imagine this is... Uh, fairly powerful in the sense of what it can do. Uh, I've got some screenshots and some presentations, but you should go to their GTC site and, and watch some of the presentations if you want more of this. Um, because not only is the NIC there with all this hardware, they've announced a software framework called DOCA, D-O-A-C-A, which is their way of saying, we'll present a whole bunch of APIs so that you can do routing, NVMF over over fabric, over IP fabrics. You want to do a distributed firewall. You want to do an IDS. You want to be doing a root of trust. We've got a whole set of APIs that you can just come along and use, ready to go out of the box. So software-defined, hardware-accelerated infrastructure modes. You want to do DDoS in the NIC. We've got that done. Here's an API. Just call it. Tell us what you want, and then we'll do the DDoS for you. Mm -hmm. That type of stuff. Yep. It's really quite a complete vision. It's an announcement. It's not, but it's not a little announcement. Like sometimes vendors say. We're announcing this part of it, and then you have to work out what the rest of it is yourself. Or this is this is our our strategy. We're delivering on this. You can go to their website now about Doka. Links are in the show notes. You can go and have a look at the code and see what it looks like. Uh, so, for me, and looking at it from enterprises, this type of SmartNIC, this DPU concept that we've been talking about, this is going to be an insight into what the future of that looks like. 
you can have a poke at that and, and imagine how your firewalls are just going to run on your servers or your PCs or on your SD-WAN devices with this type of NIC inside. Right. It's a fantastic DOCA framework is a fantastic opportunity for third parties like security providers, intelligence analytics providers to jump in and try to leverage this and then obviously increase the value of the smart NIC for NVIDIA. So smart play on NVIDIA's uh, part. We're also seeing companies like VMware really embrace this, do Mm. more security and networking at the node as opposed to in a box somewhere outside the data center. So this also aligns with VMware's vision pretty well. Yeah, well, it also harks back to the conversation we had with Dell and using Sonic as an operating system on the NIC. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because remember, all of this Docker is owned by NVIDIA, and that makes it proprietary. And if you want to use it, you have to sign up for licenses and that sort of stuff. So (laughs) do be aware when you look at this that this is a problem in that sense. If you want to see it as a problem, maybe it's a feature, you know, I don't know. But um, it's it's like the Broadcom SDK in that it's their hook into exerting a little bit of control over this uh, uh, silicon mm. they've got. That's right. So if we want to access these features, what you would rather have is not to be using NVIDIA's API. You'd want a generic API so it works on anybody's NIC, right? Right. And I don't think the way that the silicon companies operate, they don't want to be in a shared experience. So you, I don't think you would see NVIDIA, Broadcom, and Intel get together and agree a common API for these features. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that just, it that just doesn't sound right, even yes. when you say it out loud. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's NVIDIA's Bluefield 3. I think it's they're sort of, uh, there's some really good presentations. They're absolutely listenable um, and they're actually accessible enough for ordinary people. So if you've got the time and you're interested in understanding more about the DPU process. And uh, I do note that they are using the term DPU that I defined. So thanks very much for picking up on my term <laughs> and not using the the terms that other analyst firms are trying to invent um, that uh, to lay on top of this to try and say, oh, we defined the market for this because they're not going to. I think uh, that NVIDIA and Intel and Broadcom are going to try and maintain control over this uh, very much so. So very exciting. Uh, the last thing I want to pull out of here is a thing called Morpheus. And Morpheus is an example of what, both an example of what NVIDIA can give its customers and what you can do with a DPU if you have it. And what they're doing here is Morpheus is an artificial intelligence cybersecurity framework. So it's another set of APIs that sits between you and Docker. You go out and basically train a model. Uh, You just inject the model in. And this whole framework that they've got can then go and become a cybersecurity framework. So you just give it a whole bunch of data and then you throw that data through a model and it looks for uh, security breaches in in and against that data. So you might take flow logs coming off a NIC. You might take uh, threat intelligence feeds. You put it all into a model. Morpheus has a whole bunch of standard models or you can create your own models in a separate process. Mm -hmm. And then this framework will then apply them with a range of different uh, data analysis tools, you know, whether it's machine learning or uh, using inference engines or relevance engines or whatever it is. And now you've actually got a smart NIC that is an AI cybersecurity appliance. Yeah. So my take on this, my understanding was that what they're doing is they say they can analyze every packet with line rate speed without data replication using this Bluefield DPU. So my impression is what they're saying is they can actually do the analysis boosted by artificial intelligence and, you know, put caveats around AI there. But uh, the, the idea is instead of 
collecting data or telemetry and punting it back to some kind of cloud service to do the analysis. The analysis happens right there on the node. Exactly. That is excellent. Yeah, that, that's pretty much how I was trying to say. Uh, <laughs> You're but welcome. also, but you did it much better than I did. The, the difference here is that this is a framework. So if you perhaps the way to describe this is what Ansible is to most engineers for configuring networks, this Morpheus is for producing a firewall. So literally all you have to do is produce some AI models, give it some data, and it's a firewall. Right. That's the element I think that I keyed into is that they can pre-train it for you. So that's where the value comes in. And then it's already got instructions on what to do and what to look for. And I think they'll also uh, shunt this off to third parties who want to sell you pre-trained security Mm -hmm. services that you can run on these DPUs. I think the way that most enterprises will consume this is they'll go and buy it from their preferred security vendor. Yes. You know, they'll, they'll have... The security vendor is doing the training of the models and and having access to threat intelligence feeds or doing threat research, right, and gathering it together and then building models. And what you'll see in time is that the security companies will be battering each other with my models better than your model, basically. (laughs) pretty Uh, much. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be so much fun trying to parse all that (laughs) nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> it's good, yeah, because there's no benchmarks for any of that silliness. So this is the kind of thing that you're looking at. And the thing that struck me about this is just uh, how little work a vendor has to do to come up off the ground and have a cybersecurity system deployed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a bit like SD-WAN, if you wanted to build an SD-WAN appliance, there is a whole range of open source products out there. And you could basically assemble a, a, a prototype SD-WAN edge device just using open source software in about two weeks, right? Right. And then develop some sort of cloud-based platform to operate it because all the tools exist. And this tool set like Morpheus has opened my eyes to the idea that producing SASE-like functions, moving security to the edge of the network is actually just a case of finding an appropriate vendor who's got a cybersecurity framework, who's done most of the work for me. And then I just do some final 80-20. I do 20%. The 80% of the hard work has been done buy a vendor and I just have to do 20% to add this to my product. Right. Yeah. A a smart move by uh, NVIDIA because it, again, helps to create an appetite for these smart NIC DPUs. Mm. And, you know, devices at the edge will just have a smart CPU and there'll be a person, you know, the old idea of a personal firewall is, is quite something in the laptops of the future. Yeah. Interesting times. All right. So yeah, a lot from NVIDIA if you want to go check it out. Um, Let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It's Alkira and it's a Pack of Pushers live stream that's happening April 22nd. That's next Thursday. Uh, Our goal essentially was to do a webinar that doesn't suck. So that's what we try to do with Alkira in this live stream event. We're going to tell you about their cloud services exchange offering. This is networking as a service so customers can access virtual networking and security services in Alkira's POPs around the world. And from these POPs, you can connect your data center, your branches, your remote workers to multiple public cloud locations. That's the idea. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Alkira is, when I first saw Alkira, I think I said, uh, what, about a year ago, I thought, I said, I thought they were a little bit too early, Drew. Mm-hmm. And I indicated that they're sort of too far ahead of the curve. And I wasn't 100% sure. But as I get more and more into the product, and also as they change the product to meet where the market is, and less of being too far, you know, skating to where the puck is going, <laughs> and maybe not not that far ahead of the puck sort of thing. I'm actually starting to get a bit more confident that Alkira is onto something here. There is certainly a market for it in terms of their ability to um, use inter inter proxies and intermediate middle boxes to build an overlay network that does stuff that we don't normally see. And I'm beginning to see the use case for this. And 
So I was pleased when they said they wanted to come on board to do our first live stream because this gives me a chance to try and explore this idea about how it fits in and why it's worth worth doing. Yeah. So the way we set up the live stream is it, instead of just 60 minutes of someone talking at you with slides, we broke it into a bunch of smaller chunks uh, to make it more easily digestible, make it more dynamic. Each one will be hosted by a packet pusher or two. Plus, we'll hear from Alkira experts and their customers. They're sending two customers, so we'll get into customer use cases so we can get into the real nitty-gritty details. For sure. I hope you can come along. It's going to be, should be slightly different. Sign up. Not different. Yeah. Hopefully a good webinar. Yes, that's that's the goal. <laughs> a webinar doesn't suck. Uh, register at packetpushers.net slash live stream, and we'll see you on April 22nd. All right, back to the news. Microsoft is spending $16 billion in cash to buy a speech-to-text company called Nuance. You may have heard of one of their products called Dragon. It's a transcription product. But uh, I guess Microsoft and Nuance see a big opportunity in the healthcare field using speech-to-text to get medical data into electronic medical record systems by a voice instead of the doctor or nurse typey typing into the computer. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you remember using Dragon Dictate back in the day, Drew. Uh, I had a friend who used it and hated it, but that was in the early yeah. aughts. So <laughs> hopefully it's improved. <laughs> I had a problem uh, where I was couldn't type for long hours at a certain point in time. I had a sort of a, a sore hands and arms yeah. Yeah. and I tried to use out some dictation type software and I did pay out for a license and boy, was it awful. Mm -hmm. You can't just talk at nuance like you can uh, a Siri or a Cortana uh, you know, or an Alexa, you actually have to frame your and say specific. You have to say stop, new line, and it, and it's this arcane sort of speech. You have to be trained to use it, which makes the sixteen billion dollar valuation bonkers to me. But I guess that uh, Microsoft must think that if they add the custom engine for uh, lingo, like or vertical specific language like medical language is odd you know they, they talk in latin and use weird terms all the time and the same for other specific fields uh, not just healthcare but others then microsoft thinks that if they can get a hold of that technology maybe they can do something with it i don't know so i went to try to find out a little bit more about the use case here and that so nuance and microsoft have a bunch of stuff up about how medical professionals really struggle with actually paying attention to patients when they're trying to fill in data uh, in these electronic medical records. So yes, I could see a use case where this could be valuable, but also having worked with transcription software, even at Packet Pushers try to transcribe some of our podcasts, when you get into arcane technical language, the opportunity for screw-ups is significant. It's not a big deal in a podcast transcript. It's a serious issue in medical records. So I would want to be very careful with something like this. Yeah. And Nuance has obviously managed to do that well enough that they Still in business, I suppose. But I guess. Uh, it does just feel like Microsoft is awash with cash and what the hell. Yeah. I read a <laughs> I New York Times story about this and they said Microsoft ended 2020 with $132 billion in cash. So I assume executives see that sitting there and want to do something with it. And they're like, sure, let's acquire a company. Well, you could could pay tax on it, but maybe they don't oh, want to. No. <laughs> maybe. Oh, 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 no. You socialist. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah, exactly. Get out of here with that taxes. Anyway, yeah, so, uh, and there's also a lot of AI washing all over the announcements. So I, my skeptical meter is high, but I guess Microsoft thinks they have an opportunity to sell software here. So yeah, Microsoft billion. doesn't have a great hit rate with making the most of acquisitions. So, you know, maybe it's, uh, uh, I, I hope it doesn't let down a bunch of people who have been using it and uh, we'll see what Microsoft does with it over time. Yep. 
speaking of Valkyra, we just uh, uh, teased our live stream. The, they also have some news. They announced that it's now available in the Azure Marketplace, their solution, so potential customers can purchase a service more easier if you're in Azure. Alkira, Alkira also announced it's been selected for the Microsoft for Startups program, which gives Alkira, quote, technology and business support, unquote, uh, from Azure to leverage Azure. Yeah, so this is the idea that if you build an overlay network and then you put functions into the network, some sort of network functions virtualization at key points, then you can have a consistent network regardless of where or what the underlay is. Yep. And that also means whether you're running Azure off-prem or an on-prem cloud or you're running stuff in someone else's cloud or you're running on legacy MPLS or whatever it is you're running on, you need to have one network that brings it all together is how I see it. Yep. And in the case of Azure, and it's a real problem for them to get enterprise companies to be able to access the services in Azure consistently. Like it's one thing to set up an IPSEC tunnel using their virtual WAN, the Azure virtual WAN, which is kind of lame. Right. And customers want to be able to connect their SD-WAN. They don't want to be able to, they don't want to have to keep instantiating SD-WAN devices in VMs and doing arcane networking magic to try and inject this stuff in, you know, in, building these very complicated front ends so that the users can access the data that's in the cloud. Mm -hmm. And Alkira has um, managed to get into a program there. And for this particular release, at least some part of Microsoft has endorsed them quite highly for multi-cloud connectivity, which is actually a substantial achievement. It's not often Microsoft comes out and says, ah, we want this company. This company's really got something. Normally they say something like, uh, our partners are a valued part of our <laughs> ecosystem and we, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Words this that is mean actually, nothing, yes. Yeah, this is actually says uh, that uh, Alkira has really achieved something here and uh, some substantial part of uh, Azure's internal executive infrastructure actually thinks this is a win for them, enough to actually commit to making um, serious words about the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. My take is that lots of companies are contesting the multi-cloud space. Uh, if you're a startup like Alkira is, uh, you're looking for some kind of validation. And so they'll take what they can from external sources like Microsoft being in this Microsoft for Startups program, et cetera. Yeah, it also highlights the incompetency of public clouds. They just don't understand what's outside of their own infrastructure. They're really not customer focused. They're just focused on the customer stuff that happens inside their cloud. And they need, and as many enterprises find out, it's great when you're in their clouds. And as long as you want whatever they give you, you, you can you can be happy, right? But right. as soon as you want something different, or as soon as you're not inside their cloud, it all falls down. There's a there's a world of unhappiness there, which then creates the opportunity for third parties like Alkira and others to say, "Hey, let us take care of that difficulty for you." Yes, I believe so. All right, we're going to finish up with some more updates on silicon shortages and supply chain problems. Uh, there's a story in the New York Times covering how there's a drought in Taiwan and it's pitting Taiwanese farmers against Taiwan's semiconductor industry, in particular TSMC. Yeah, it was a classic piece of journalism where they actually went out and uh, somebody doorstopped the farmers in the Taiwanese area uh, around where the water is being consumed by the government and said, uh, do you regret, you know, you're being starved of water? Do you feel bad about it? Um and the, I thought that one of the interesting parts was the Taiwanese farmers said, well, you know, the farm, the food that we make on our farms actually sells to the people who work in those factories. So we're kind of okay with it, but kind of not. Right. <laughs> Which I thought was odd, right? It was, yeah. Normally the farmers go, no, they're killing my business and I hate. And these people went, well, you know, we actually, all the stuff that we grow here is, goes to the people who work in those factories. So, uh, but I think it highlights how much water um, is actually being consumed by the ASIC making, by the process of making ASICs. I don't understand why. It would be interesting to know about. 
but I think also there was a nice piece over at uh, Data Center Knowledge this week where some home routers used by broadband networks are now on a 60-week delay. Uh-huh. So I suspect that's for bulk orders. You know, if, you've, if you're a broadband provider and you're trying to order 150,000 broadband nodes to stock up on your rollout, you might be on a 60-week lead time for those. Um, and then also there's another link in the show notes to RRS Technica. They uh, put a piece together where they're pulling on different pieces of reporting from Intel, TSMC, and NVIDIA, indicating that the supply chain is definitely choking up. They're definitely having problems keeping up, getting access to silicon uh, particularly. So I just wanted to point out, if you've got plans for a project, you may have to flag supply chain issues as a potential risk. That's right. Yeah, I just want uh, what jumped out at me is that the water consumption process, I didn't realize how much it was. The New York Times reports that TSMC consumed 63 million tons of water in 2019. And having a drought now means that there are serious issues. So all the supply chain stuff, there are so many dependencies that you need to be taking into account as you figure out your networking and equipment strategy going forward. <laughs> it's it's a boggling amount of water. And uh, Taiwan relies on the summer rains to fill its reservoirs and then exhaust them during the year. And this year, the summer rains haven't arrived on time and the reservoirs are down a little bit. And then, of course, the geopolitical tension with China isn't helping. Right. Uh, we're seeing China refuse to start, is, is slowing down its exports to various countries in critical areas. Uh, and we're also seeing the US government hold the line, the new US government that's in power, hold the line with refusing to take uh, export stuff to China. So China's ability to make certain things is restricted. And in some cases, the ability to import things are being restricted. And uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot of these tech companies are going to be going to the government saying, sure, we'll be happy to help you solve your problem, governments. Just a few billion dollars and we'll build a factory. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> They're always up for a free handout, those guys. Always, Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like Tesla, you know. Sure, sure. We'd love to make battery-operated cars and improve the environment, but what I really want is those green taxes to be paying me to produce that car, yep. which is actually true. Tesla actually makes a substantial, I think somebody did the numbers, something like 60 to 80% of its profits come from uh, taxes, handouts from governments because it's making so-called green products. It's actually unprofitable without it uh, and so forth. And same thing with uh, SpaceX. Virtually all of its work is for the US government. So all of its money comes from government subsidies in indirect government subsidies. So how about fascinating. that? Yep, very fascinating. Mm. All right, well, lots that? of links for you to explore. Uh, this does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Abneta, exploring how you can optimize performance and support for your highly distributed workforce. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. So we're now more than a year into enterprises supporting remote work for large numbers of their employees, and it's pretty likely the companies are going to continue to support a mix of in-office and work-from-anywhere options. So on today's episode, sponsored by AppNetto, we're going to explore how IT can optimize performance and support for a highly distributed workforce and develop a sustainable strategy for a work-from-anywhere reality. Our guests from AppNetto are Adam Edwards. He is Chief Customer Officer and Mike Hustler. He is CTO. Adam and Mike, welcome to the podcast. So as I said, we're more than a year into this experience and work from anywhere is likely to be the model going forward. So when you talk to customers, where do you see them lagging in trying to optimize for remote work? Uh, A year in, are we there yet? (laughs) 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 I'd say we're seeing uh, three themes with with common lag. Uh, First, if you think about the remote office, the ones that are open to now tend to be really important. Uh, i.e. revenue generating sites where Mm -hmm. customers are served 
uh, remaining staff uh, like us who can work remotely are doing so. So you see a basically doubling of infrastructure that IT has to support and where something can go wrong and, and usually does. So safe to say IT is stretched to deliver uh, against the normal service levels we all had a little over a year ago. At the other end of that, you see the data center. Teams have remained all in from what we see across our enterprise customers and even more so as core apps and connectivity modes uh, grow to support this new duality. We've seen a steady migration from on-prem data centers to cloud uh, as workload shift to support customers' transformations that were probably already planned, but may have even been pulled in uh, mm-hmm. through the pandemic. So cloud-native platforms, containerization, VMs, and so on are playing a growing role. Uh, and to some extent, uh, you're seeing on-prem data centers and apps move to the cloud, move to even third-party SaaS mm-hmm. in, in some cases. So uh, more needles and more haystacks. And I think when it comes to common lag, um, teams need visibility in across this doubling infrastructure. So when something goes wrong, what do you do about it? Uh, you know, are my users having a problem with Zoom company-wide uh, or just with my Comcast users in New England? It's the speed of change is one thing, like, and it's a forced change. So when we've spoken to people about what they did during this transition, a lot of people said, we took existing solutions and moved them out to the edge. Like, you know, if we had thin clients, we just moved, put everybody with a thin client. Some people just did thin clients to their desktops at work, and that was their remote access solution, right? <laughs> and that's that would work, <laughs> um, but it's probably not long-term sustainable. And I've heard of people doing VPN concentrators, but using uh, typical, you know, legacy VPN models and then connecting legacy VPN clients to them, but deploying them in the cloud so that they got speed. And they're sort of building up this, and then everybody knows they're building up this technical debt, but they also know that they can't see anything. You've got no visibility here. That's exactly right. I think it's key to kind of just step back and understand that, as you said at the beginning, you know, work from anywhere is is going to be with us for a long time. And at the beginning, we had a high tolerance. You know, we we threw around, uh, we're all in this together, and uh, and there were, you know, there's a lot of empathy being uh, being thrown around. But uh, that's starting to shift and starting to kind of go away. And we need to shift that empathy back to the IT teams, as you said at the beginning of the pandemic. People would have probably beefed up their VPN concentrators and their other edge devices. And they would have put in the standard monitoring around it to make sure that you know logs, uh, status, health, load metrics, all that's being being looked at, and you have that kind of observability. But are you getting the view from your end users workstation from the end user mm. through to the apps that they're using? So you've got the same same people, same apps, but now you've got new paths, and those paths, whether they're working in the in their home, whether they're working in the office, those paths are, are changing. And we need to make sure that from a performance perspective, we're uh, looking and monitoring those those paths. But just to set context then, obviously AppNet has got a visibility solution. Can you just give us the 30,000 foot overview so folks have a you know some idea of where to hang their hats on this? Yeah, uh, AppNet is a network performance service. It's gives you real-time insight into user experience from any location to any application, no matter where it's hosted. Uh, So we do this with a combination of end-to-end application delivery path monitoring, uh, live packets on the wire flows, and doing synthetic transactions. Uh, We call it four-dimensional monitoring, and it really gives you that insight from anywhere to anywhere, uh, from your individual office of one on a workstation, uh, all the way up to 100 gig data center. Okay, thank you, that was excellent. I think one of the interesting parts about AppNetter and monitoring is 
uh, I talked a minute ago about how the solutions are where they are, but they're also going to move to something else. We've seen a lot of the traditional vendors make a big point about hybrid work or, dirt, as I call it, distributed work, where people are going to be moving out of the office. And I think the challenge that people haven't yet met is the idea that there's an existing solution and there's a new solution and you need to make them all work at the same time. You need to rely on visibility tools that are independent of the actual network so that you can see what's happening on both the old and the new and measure them and then troubleshoot and get visibility through the transition. Is that some, that's my thinking. Is that sane? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. So when you're not working in the office, that used to be a, you know, travel evenings, weekend, or, or maybe exception based, uh, base condition. And now it's, you know, it's core and it's going to be with us in the middle of the business day and for a long time. So whether you're, yeah, whether you're working, working from home or in the office, you need that same, that same visibility through the infrastructure from your workstation to your apps. I feel like employees want to work from anywhere, but they're also expecting the same level of IT support they would get if they were in the office and the same kind of application performance. So do you have examples from AppNet of customers or how about how they're trying to sort of balance these competing demands? One of the aspects of our customer engagement approach that makes us different is our teams work hard to understand our customers' business challenges and then help them meet them with our monitoring platform. So we keep a really good ear to the ground to understand how we're helping uh, enterprises. Uh, one example uh, recently is with a regional healthcare provider. It leverages us to monitor user experience across multiple applications like electronic medical records, uh, imaging, and telehealth delivery. Uh, last year, the customer added a pair of applications used to deliver uh, daily uh, COVID test results and health checks. So as you imagine, a uh, return to work survey uh, requires employees to validate negative symptoms, uh, just like you might see for children going to school every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the surface, it seems like it's a simple checklist, uh, has a distributed app and data tier behind it, and it's delivered to multiple users within and outside of an organization. So uh, one day, the customer was monitoring this uh, and understood that the application had become intermittently available. So alerts sounded, notified the, the team, and they began to troubleshoot. Now, Mike's going to get way nerdier than I am uh, with his role, but part of our platform does synthetic user experience. Uh, so you can proactively spot issues with an app independently of when a particular user may be online. Uh, so we use a full version of Chrome on our monitoring points uh, to monitor that user experience. When the customer in question was notified that there was an error, they could actually see the last error that the user experience would have rendered, in this case, a connection reset. So we looked in the platform and uh, understood that uh, the route history showed that there were actually a pair of application servers hiding behind a load balancer, and one of them had a misconfigured certificate. So as you might imagine, a lot of needles and a lot of haystacks, we made a simple problem very quickly evident. So live saved, resume generating events avoided, (laughs) and... um, you know, when you select a career in IT and monitoring, you know you're not directly saving lives, but knowing you help customers do this is always a plus. Okay, I think that's an important point because we all know that users uh, will say the network is slow, but that doesn't really help you when you're trying to figure out a problem. So the benefit, I guess, of a synthetic transaction is that you can actually make that test for yourself to actually get some actionable insight. Absolutely. So loading the network, being able to put the right packets on the network to get uh, full insight of the end-to-end performance of that network from where the user is to where the apps are is 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 critical and is what AppNeta brings. And again, that helps support that sort of work from anywhere uh, strategy because you're not necessarily relying on <laughs> the skill of your end users to be able to help you identify and diagnose faults. 
you're not, yeah, you're not relying on the skill of, of your end users for sure. You're giving visibility into their work, the workstation, the environment that they're in, as well as the, the full path to the, to the apps by putting the, uh, the precise packets that we need to get that measurement on the network, we're able to handle uh, work from home users at a massive scale. Have you kind of put together a playbook or are there best practices for the most common issues that you're seeing arising from this work from anywhere environment? Yeah. And I think that's the first rule of a playbook is to, to have one works better than hope always. <laughs> um, we recommend deploying a combined active and passive platform uh, an instrument everywhere your users are operating. Usually in a work from home model where you have issues, it's most often the case that you'll see a last mile issue, either last few feet within the home or maybe with a, a residential best effort ISP. But to be sure, you've got to look at the end-to-end -end instrumentation that, uh, that Mike mentioned. So most customers that are supporting a hybrid workforce will leverage the corporate office as kind of the gold standard. Mm -hmm. uh, those have well-managed tier one carrier grade internet connections. Uh, sometimes they do go directly to the internet, but sometimes they're going over uh, MPLS with QoS. So think of that as probably the ideal performance model. That's your reference, your control. And then to that, you need to overlay work from home users. Uh, but you need metadata about those users, maybe region, maybe ISP, maybe department, maybe role, maybe the app uh, and some other, you know, firmographic data. So that way, when something goes bump in the night, you can answer the question, who else is affected? Is this a service-wide issue or is this, again, just my regional users with a specific app? So you're integrating yeah. with tools like Active Directory there to say, oh, this person's a part of this team to gather the monitoring data into something relevant and useful? Yeah, we have an approach called uh, Just Tell Me. It's really helping, um, you know, all of our customers uh, have multiple monitoring tools and multiple single panes of glass and knock screens, right? So when, when you get an event and that's about user experience, that could be anywhere. That could be uh, from the user's last mile to the app, to the middle of the internet and everywhere in between. So we understand that with the broad instrumentation we have, we need to help customers segment quickly um, all of the aspects about that application so they can sort the data and filter based on just what they need to solve that and action it quickly. Uh, it's really easy otherwise to just swim in data. As Adam speaks to the, uh, to setting up the monitoring within your offices and your well-defined enterprise infrastructure, and you think of the randomness of your work from home, work from anywhere users and the, and the environments that, that they're in, uh, getting that gold standard is super important. Mm -hmm. So you're also, you're measuring between your data centers and between all of your offices, but you're also providing a level set of what the expectation is for your work from home users. And as you're, as you're measuring all of the paths from your remote workers, you're able to compare them against a known good, a, a gold standard. It really comes down to ensuring that you have the end-to-end -end performance monitoring through the path defined by your users to their critical apps. You know, the end-to-end -end is really important because you've got to see the flow from the user experience. So you've got to see it from, see what the user sees, and then you've got to see what the server sees. But I, I wanted to come back to the point that Adam made, which is you can model that you can actually gather up all the data and say, show me what the data is in my data center, or show me all the data that's happening in my cloud, and look at it by location as much as you can model it by person. That's right. We've added a lot of capabilities in the last year to help users scale across multiple use cases, connectivity modes, uh, in segment, even something like what's the version of my operating system or my monitoring point? Uh, tell me something about the region or the carrier yeah. or something similar. So it's important to be able to let the users 
segment them in ways that are meaningful to them. Although we do have a number of system-defined segments and filters, when we deploy, we work closely with users to understand how to overlay their business context in a monitoring deployment configuration. Right, yeah. And that's that's pretty important. A lot of people just have monitoring and you get, oh, this flow is going slow, but it's really about the context of that flow or that app alert saying something's wrong. Is it a person who's in a particular part of the world? Are they working at a coffee shop? Are they? Is their home broadband bad? Or is this somebody who 99% of the time has no problems whatsoever and now all of a sudden does? These are all issues of context and how you and, and getting the data to give you that that context. Yeah. You had mentioned um, new capabilities, uh, new features. Have you rolled out other new uh, features in the product to support this work from home environment? Yeah, we've been busy, you know, all through through last year in uh, embracing work from anywhere. So last year we reinvested in our our Mac and and Windows uh, monitoring points. You know, improve the installation, make it easier to roll these out at scale, support mm-hmm. the latest uh, OSs like Big Sur. So again, this is not a 20, 2020, 2021 uh, problem. We're we're definitely seeing this uh, for the long run. And it's a, a platform which we'll continue to build on to improve workstation visibility. Mm. Complementing um, WFA and the need for kind of view at scale, but equally applicable to all monitoring, whether data center or your, your offices, there's several advancements that we've been uh, in adding to the, the product to improve that visibility. So our customers can now use filters, tags to overlay, as Adam was saying, the business context an organizational contest onto their monitoring platform. That might mean segmenting or reducing the views of their total monitoring space so they can see what, what matters right now or what matters for a, a certain set of, uh, of their workforce. And then building upon that uh, cut those custom views, we've added a bunch of dashboards to give different views into, into quality. So we've added the application quality dashboard are your applications meeting our defined SLA? You know, whether they're your apps or, or critical third-party apps that you depend on, you need to be able to see and, and at a glance and, and be alerted when, when quality is subpar. Added web performance dashboards. Are your apps trending slower? Are they, are they uh, staying the same or maybe getting faster? And thinking about the distributed workforce, we've uh, improved our geo map and the, the current network violation map to give a, at a glance um, look at the paths and the service quality of those paths across your whole network or across a subset of the network as defined by your organization. One of the um, most interesting new dashboards is a tree map view that leans on the tagging and filtering and gives you, it's really important for, you know, we've been talking a lot about scale. So it gives you at a glance view into the scale and the performance across across your network and be able to to slice and, and chop that down and, and get the exact view that you want. Well, that does uh, wrap up our time. Thank you, Adam and Mike, for joining us. If folks want to find out more, where would you send them, Adam? Thanks, Drew. You can, of course, find us on all the usual social media channels, as well as our own website, uh, appneta.com forward slash packet pushers. All right, that's appneta.com slash packet pushers. Uh, thanks again, and thanks to AppNeta for being a sponsor. If you like this episode, you can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.